Today's reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 14. It's slightly abridged. We're stopping at chapter 15, verse 7, rather than going through to 13. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To hold to their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live... We live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, 
The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Thanks for reading, Mark. Well, I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I can still remember the conversation as though it was yesterday. I was at a church camp. I'd been sitting in a Bible study group with my youth pastor and a few other people, and we'd been reading through the early chapters in the book of Genesis. And someone said, unless you believe in a literal seven-day creation, you may as well walk away now. They said, I doubt, if you doubt the first few words in the start of the Bible, what hope have you got for the rest of it? I reckon they'd made a theological problem here. The idea of a literal seven-day creation, they had made a non-disputable matter. They'd made it an absolute. Now today, we're not going to talk even for a minute more about the book of Genesis and the creation account. You might be very glad to hear that this morning. But we are going to spend some time thinking about how we argue. We're going to spend some time thinking about our conduct and especially our conduct in the case of an argument. We're going to be thinking about something that Paul calls disputable matters. You would have seen that at the opening of this Bible reading. Today I want to do something with you that is to explore what a disputable matter actually is. And then having thought about that, I want to give you four things, four pointers, four things to hold on to when you come up in an argument over a disputable matter. I'm standing today on the shoulders of a man called Brian Rosner, who's the principal at Ridley College. He has written an article called Disputable Matters. I've got a copy on the piano over here. And also I stand on Don Carson's shoulders, who's written a longer article about how we determine what is disputable and what's not. I draw some of their um, ideas into the sermon today. Let me just recap where we've been. If you're new with us this morning, we have been working our way through the book of Romans. We started, as is good to start, at the start of the book. And we're now right near the very end of this letter. And in these last few chapters, Paul's really talking about how, how Christians should live their lives, how we should behave. But if you have just joined us recently, I need you to see that Paul's instructions about how we live our lives, these instructions flow out of what he said earlier. And what he said earlier is that we all, you and me, all of us, all of humanity, have fallen short of God's standard in terms of how we're to conduct our lives. Paul says that we are all sinful, that's the language he uses, all of us, you and me. And then in contrast, Paul's shown us how holy God is, how righteous God is. He's shown us that God is faithful to his promises to to be just, and yet also to build for himself a family, a people who love him. And we've seen how God brings about that justice. We've seen Paul describe for us the sacrificial death of Jesus, God's son, who died in our place. 
And we saw that achieved justice. See, even though none of us deserve to be in God's family, because of what Jesus has done, we can be. That's what the first 11 chapters of Romans is all about. And what we're reading today, it really assumes that we know all of that. And not just that we know all of that, actually, it also assumes that we believe it. And so if you're here today as someone who came along just to learn a little bit more about Jesus, thank you for being with us. You're in the right place. We'd love to talk more about Jesus with you. But our passage today doesn't tell us exactly why you should believe. You should hear this morning about how following Jesus will make you a better person, how it changes us and shapes us into being someone who is a bit different. But if you want to actually know what Jesus has done for you, I'd love to tell you more about that. Uh, We have uh, leaflets, you'll see an outline in there, you'll also see a little tear-off slip. If that's you today, if you want to know a bit more about Jesus, pop your name on that and pop it in the everything box out in the hall table. I'd love to chat more about that with you. But today what we're really looking at is our conduct or our way of living. I want to be clear though, it's based on what Jesus has done for us. That reality shapes our behaviour today. And today's passage, I think really what it does is it asks this question, in light of what God has done for us, how do we argue well? How do we argue well? wonder this morning what you think makes for a good argument. Perhaps for you, a good argument is one where you end up as the winner, or, or maybe even more importantly, a good argument is one in which your opponent loses, because they're not always the same thing, is it? Now, before we tackle this passage, we need to realise as well that Paul is talking here about what he labels disputable matters. He's talking about the grey areas where there is no clear answer about how to proceed. Now, just because some things are debated or argued over doesn't necessarily make them a grey area or a disputable matter. Let me give you an example. Some of you may have heard of a man called Samuel Shenton. In 1956, he created the International Flat Earth Research Society. His debate essentially was that the Earth was a disk, not a sphere, that it was flat. One day he was shown satellite images of the earth from space. Most of us would take that to be absolute proof that the earth was spherical. And Shenton says, it's easy to see how a photograph like that could fool the untrained eye. See, that the earth is flat, that's not really a disputable matter, is it? At least not in the sense that Paul intends for us to read this. What a disputable matter is, rather, is something where there's biblical ambiguity. There's no ambiguity, is there, about the earth being round. But some things are ambiguous in the Bible. There are some things and some ways of thought that Paul describes as disputable matters, where the Bible allows some level of flexibility. And as we think about this this morning, I think it might be helpful for you to have two categories or two columns in your mind. Perhaps in one column you want to have the absolutes, and in another column you want to have the disputable matters. If your mind works like mine, it might be quite good to kind of visualise two columns in your mind. See, in the absolute column, we've got things like this, do not murder, do not commit adultery, teach the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's often quite easy, I think, to work out at least some of the absolutes in the Bible. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, Paul makes the death and the resurrection of Jesus an absolute, a non-negotiable matter. This is what he says. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. That's an indisputable truth in Christianity, that Jesus died for sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. It's an absolute, belongs in the absolute column. Now, of course, not everyone in the whole world believes in that. But in terms of Christian teaching and doctrine, the death and resurrection of Jesus is indisputable. Some things I want to argue with you this morning are just not up for debate, right? Indeed, there are some debates that I think we should just walk away from. And Paul shows us that in the book of Romans. Come with me right to the end of Romans, to chapter 16, verse 17. To page or so over. There Paul instructs the church, the Roman church, to keep away from those who teach a different gospel. This is what he says. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. See, because some things are indisputable, because they belong in that absolute column, if someone teaches something that's against that, like the resurrection of Jesus, we're to keep away from them. Same goes for our conduct. Some ways of behaving are absolutes. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul urges the congregation to expel a person from their midst whose sexual conduct is contrary to the plain teaching of the Bible. That's the absolute column. We have another column, the disputable matters. And Paul mentions a number of those things in Romans chapter 14. So, for example, he lists the observance of one day as being more sacred than another the eating of meat, perhaps a little closer to home for us, the drinking of alcohol. You with me at this point? Two columns, some things are disputable, some things are absolutes. Here's where it gets a little tricky. Sometimes it feels like things move between the columns, depending on who you are or the situation you're in. Let me give you an example. Dancing, would you put it in the absolute no column or the flexibility you can do it if you want is it okay for christians to go out dancing my guess is that most of us would say oh yeah that probably belongs in the flexibility column but not long ago many churches would have put dancing in the absolutely no column no way would you be allowed to do that wouldn't even been a question open for debate now if you ask me it should still be there Partly because I have no ability to move to the music. No, I'm just joking, really. Today, I think most of us would consider dancing to be okay. What is absolute, then? And what's disputable will sometimes be shaped and by culture and by what's going on around us. But I want you to see it's always connected to salvation. For those of you who doubt this ability to move between the columns, when you get home today, have a look at the way in which Paul behaves when he thinks about circumcision in the case of Timothy. You can see that in Acts chapter 16. And then compare it with Titus in Galatians 2. Same action, different behaviour. 
one case the issue was disputable and in another not. Chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Romans are all about our conduct when we face a disputable matter. How do we determine what's disputable? Well, I'm going to try and answer that question with you a little bit later on. I'm going to lean on Don Carson's work here. But I want to leave that, I want to leave you hanging in a sense with that. And we'll come back later in the morning and answer that question. Because what I want to do now is step into the text that Mark read for us before. And I want to read to you from the first few verses of Romans chapter 14. This is what Paul says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Paul acknowledges something that I think most of us will come to realise. Christians, like everyone else, know how to argue. We're pretty good at getting into arguments. And in verse 2, we see the source of the argument in the Roman church, and it's got something to do with what people are eating. Look down at verse 5 of me, we'll see another source of their argumentation. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. It seems as we read these verses that there's a dispute going on in the Roman, Roman church and it seems to have something to do about the ongoing relevance of the law, the Mosaic law. Remember the law set a whole lot of instructions about what made food, for example, clean came with a whole set of instructions about what to do on festival or Sabbath days. And it seems that for many people in the Roman church, these things mattered. And it mattered because it was part of their culture or tradition. And the question then really is, is it permissible for these traditions to continue? And if you've been reading through the book of Romans up until this point, I think Paul's answer might surprise you. Because back in chapter 7, Paul mounted a really strong argument to show that Christians are no longer under the obligation of the law. Remember he used that analogy of marriage and death. If a wife's husband dies, she's no longer obligated to her husband, Paul said. In the same way, Paul says, Christians are no longer obligated to the law. But Paul doesn't beat these people down here with the truth of the gospel until they submit to it. Rather, he says in verse 1, except the one whose faith is weak. Accept them. I wonder how it sits with you. The idea of accepting someone who's weak. Because if you're like me, you probably find this idea a little bit challenging. See, if I think I know the answer to a problem or the answer to a question that someone's asked, I find it really tricky not to want to say the answer or speak my mind. I wonder how you go in that situation. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 14 with what Paul says. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Don't treat them with contempt, don't judge them, and remember that God has accepted them. That's what Paul says. Now come down just a few more verses now. It's not that Paul himself is unsure about whether he's right or wrong at this point. He's crystal clear in his own view He says in verse 14 that I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He knows the meat that they're eating is not unclean. So Paul can do that. He can hold on to his own convictions and yet he's gentle and doesn't insist that his strength should win out. 
It might seem a bit strange for us as we read this at first. Um, I read in Brian Rosner's article on this, he quotes Peter Adam, and I think it's a great little quote. I'm going to read it to you. This is what Peter Adam says. Peter Adam is a, a pastor who's probably getting near the end of his life in Melbourne, a very wise man. He says this, If I had been writing Romans 14, I would have told those who were weak in faith and still kept special days to sort themselves out and to know that they are justified by grace through faith, not by keeping special days of Jewish practice. Paul, on the other hand, told the strong in faith to accept the weak in faith and the weak in faith to accept the strong in faith. Both the strong and the weak are answerable to God, not to each other. And so Peter Adam summarises, so we must allow people to act differently in matters that don't contradict the gospel. Why must we, do you think? Why is Paul providing that sort of instruction? Why not just get on with the business of making sure that everybody understands things properly as you do? Why be flexible? I think part of the answer must be because surely these disputable matters, these issues about what you eat or what you drink, they pale in comparison to the much greater task, the much more important task of living out kingdom values in your life. So it seems to me as I read this chapter that the cultural practices and the being right or wrong matter far less to Paul than how we actually behave and how we live our lives. Paul, it seems, wants us to be living out the kingdom values of righteousness and joy and peace and patience rather than being right. That's where Paul takes this in verse 17 of chapter 14. Just have a look at that verse. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 14 and see that there. See, what really matters, it seems, is not our observation of traditions, but rather that we'd accept our brothers and sisters in Christ in order that God may be glorified and praised. That's what matters. That's the summary that we see in verse 7 of chapter 15 where Mark stops. I think that's where this is all heading. Rather than destroying those who are weaker in faith in order that you might prove your superior understanding, we're rather to accept the weaker brother and sister. And when we do so, we demonstrate kingdom values of love and peace and patience and kindness and humility and that brings praise and glory to God. We're to do that at times if it means giving up our own freedom. If eating something distresses your brother or sister in Christ, Paul encourages us not to exercise that freedom. In many ways, it all seems pretty simple, doesn't it? There's a higher imperative than being right. There's more at stake than simply being correct. God's glory and his praise are on view, so don't quarrel and don't Argue over the disputable matters, Paul says. Instead, live your lives, conduct yourselves in a way that brings glory to God. So you might ask then, well, how do we do that? Well, I've got four pointers. I said I'd give them to you. They come from Brian Rosner. Four pointers about how we're to conduct ourselves, conduct our lives when we enter into these areas of disputable matters. And the first pointer is this. Act according to your own convictions in line with your conscience. And Brian gets that from verse 5 of chapter 14. I'm going to read it to you. It says, he says this, 
Paul says, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so for the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so for the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. See, in the case of the the Roman church, whether you eat or drink depends on your conscience. And Paul tells us that our consciences matter. Verse 23, we read, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Our consciences have relevance here, because if we go against our conscience, Paul says we're being sinful. Has your conscience today... I like what um, Don Carson says about our conscience. He says, the conscience is a delicate spiritual organ. It's easily damaged, he says. And surely no Christian who cares about living for God would want to live with a damaged conscience. If we damage our conscience by acting against it when we come to a disputable matter then maybe when we get to one of those absolute matters, our conscience won't work so well. Wouldn't that be harmful for us? So the first point is to act in line with our consciences. Second tip that Brian Rosner gives us is, when we're dealing with disputable matters, we're not to judge others. We see this a number of times in the passage. Paul says in verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. None of us are accountable to each other in that sense, are we? But rather we're accountable to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. We report to him. He's our judge. Third key. When we come up against what we think of as a disputable matter... Our conduct and goal in the discussion should be to produce peace and mutual edification. Get that from verse 19. We're to look to build each other up, not tear each other down. And the fourth bit of advice is that sometimes it's going to be necessary to be flexible for the sake of others. And what I want you to see today is that by being flexible, we're imitating the conduct of Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, just as Jesus didn't look to please himself, so we should bear with the failings of the weak in order to build them up. Paul's prayer in verse 5 is similar in that vein. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So there are four bits of advice here calling us to imitate Jesus. A bit of advice calling us to look to the Lordship of Jesus. He said in the end goal and for us to bring glory to God even in the midst of a disputable matter. I hope that makes sense. Four bits of advice how to help you deal with a disputable matter. And that's all very well when we're able to work out what is actually disputable. But just because people might disagree with one form of conduct or one theological idea doesn't necessarily make it a disputable matter, does it? 
I want to read to you a quote from Douglas Moo. You'll see it on the screen. I think it's important that we think through this in this passage. This is what Douglas Moo says, he's a commentator. He says, we've seen eating meat and drinking wine and observing the Jewish holy days belong in the category of the adiaphora, that is, things neither commanded nor prohibited to Christians. In other words, they are a disputable matter. And here's what Douglas Moo says, extending Paul's plea for tolerance to other issues is both wrong and dangerous. He goes on to say that there are some interpreters of Romans 14 who use this chapter as evidence that professing Christians, whatever their exact beliefs, just need to accept one another. They say theological differences should be no bar to complete Christian recognition and unity. Moo says, such an approach unfairly extrapolates from the specific issues of this text to any issue. You see what he's saying? Some things matter. So how do we determine what's disputable and what's not? I wonder what you think. I think in the end, we have to read the Bible to find out what matters. And that's what Don Carson says again. I've got lots of quotes for you today. Sorry about that, but here's another one on the screen. How do we determine what's disputable and what's not? In short, the most fundamental tool for establishing what is or is not a disputable matter is careful, faithful exegesis or reading of the Bible, understanding it in its proper way. How do we determine what is disputable and what's not? Well, we look down at the words in the Bible and we trust that that will help us to understand. That's not very easy to do though, is it? That's why learning to read the Bible well is so important. I think that's why it's worth us supporting theological colleges who have very skilled Bible exegetes. That's why it's important, I think, to have biblical scholars in each and every generation. See, each and every generation has its own culture and its own specific issues. And we need help working out in our culture what is disputable and what's not. Let me draw you back to our big idea of our passage today. That is that our conduct matters. Indeed, our conduct, as we argue, gives us opportunity to demonstrate the values of the kingdom of God and to show that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world in the here and now. That is, the kingdom of God is not about arguments over disputable matters. Rather, it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, that is what really matters. Being in the right or wrong in a pointless debate doesn't matter. Pointing people to the reality of God's kingdom and the way that he would like us to live, that's what's really important. That's what brings God praise and honour and glory. As I've been working through this passage over the last week or so, I've been reminded of the way that Paul behaves and what he speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read this to you as a way to finish this morning and as a bit of a prayer for us. This is what Paul says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, 
I might save some. Amen. Got a couple of questions today. Thank you for sending through questions on the SMS line. That's really great and very helpful for me. I'm just going to bring them up. Our first question says, it feels like there are some issues that are still taboo or hard to tell, talk about, even in strong Christian circles like women in the Bible, teaching or sexuality. This might be because we aren't sure if they are disputable or not. Should we be actively discussing these or try not to bring them up and argue? Good question, isn't it? Kind of flows right out of the passage, really kind of applies it to our everyday life. What are we to do? Are we to train and teach each other? I think the answer to that question is yes. I think we want to be able to speak the truth um, in ways that and in settings that are helpful for each other. Um, Like in Timothy, we read earlier in the year about helping build each other up to know the full um, understanding of the gospel and that all scripture is useful for that task. I think there are great settings and great opportunities where we would train and teach each other what the truth of the Bible is and what we understand that to be. Then there are times where we argue about those things, where the outcome of that is not mutual edification, where the outcome of that is wanting to be the winner and wanting other people to be the loser. I think there are different situations. There's times where we can teach and train and respect each other as we're doing that and build each other up in mutual edification and as we do that we're demonstrating kingdom values of love and peace and patience and kindness and there are just other ways of doing that where what matters is being right and Paul says I think in this passage when we come to those times where we're talking about disputable matters sure it's okay he says even here do not let watch in verse 16 of chapter 14 do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. So there are times where we're still to be able to talk about these things. But the way in which we do it, do we argue in order that our brother may stumble or do we talk in different settings about how we train each other? Um, I think it's kind of different situations, different settings. We want people to know the truth of the gospel and to understand it, where it's a disputable matter, not at the sake of them stumbling and falling. I've got another question. Let me just have a look at that one. In Ephesians 4, we are to be built up until we reach unity in the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Um, it's essentially the same question. While we should not do anything that would stumble the weaker brother, should we leave them in that state of weaker faith? I think... Um, We might want to leave a person in a disputable matter um, not agreeing with where we are if it means that um, that will build them up, uh, that the argument might destroy them. I think we're to leave them there. If we think um, in another setting and not an argument way that we could train them and teach them to understand in a different way, I think we should go about doing that. I think we're allowed to build each other up and to encourage each other in that sense. The outcome is what's important here though, isn't it? Are we demonstrating kingdom values by the outcome? Or are we uh, putting a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister's way that will cause them to fail and fall? I hope that's helpful. Please come and chat with me after. I'm going to hand back over to Miff.